We want to turn our attention to the book of Daniel. So if you've brought your Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 3. This is not a Father's Day message, but I suppose it it certainly could be. Uh, So open to Daniel chapter 3. I was reading in a work this week on John MacArthur, and he he quoted a pastor, and I, and I thought that the words were appropriate, even addressing it to you fathers. The man's name was Studert Kennedy, and uh, he was an Anglican uh, minister. He was a, a pastor in Worcester, that's in England, and he was a chaplain in World War I. And as a chaplain, he had to go out to war, and he had to leave, did Kennedy, his family. He had a little son, and he wrote a letter to his little son from the trenches of France, where he was in the midst of a great battle and a chaplain serving in World War I. This is what he said, and the letter was through his wife, for his son was still little. And here's what Studert Kennedy said, quote, the first prayer I want my son to learn to say to me is not, God, keep daddy safe. He said, the first prayer I want my son to learn is, God, make daddy brave. And if he has has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. He went on to write in this letter, life and death don't matter, my son. Right and wrong do. And he said, daddy dead is daddy still But daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. He said, I suppose you'd like to put a bit about safety too, and mother would. Well, put it in afterwards. Always afterwards, for it doesn't matter nearly as much. End of quote. I mean, that's well articulated in that day and in this day. Daddy dead is daddy still. He's still daddy, but daddy compromised in essence is chaos. And the question I'm gonna ask you fathers and really to all of us today is do you live on internal principle of biblical conviction Or do you live on the external pressure from the world which is trying to squeeze you into its mold? As we come to Daniel chapter 3, he's going to detail for us, I think familiar to you, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar made for all of his subjects to worship. And we see in the lives of these three men a life of uncompromising integrity. I mean, we would know that their faith was genuine, their hearts were were devoted, and their convictions were solid. Their convictions were sure. In fact, the writer of Hebrews must have had these three in mind, Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego in 1134 of Hebrews when he says they quenched the power of fire. I think a direct reference to those three. Now let me just take a moment to give you the big picture. Chapter one was God's sovereign display over Daniel's life as well as the friends. Chapter two, we just finished, yes, last week, was God's sovereign dominion over the nations as he put forth four kingdoms that would come in succession. Today, chapter three, God's sovereign deliverance from the furnace. And you can see it runs three, one through 30. And I believe it will take me two messages to complete. Chapter three, though, is a test of their loyalty and a test of ours. I mean, we either compromise in the heat of battle or we live courageously by our convictions. And so this is my prayer for you on Father's Day and certainly it's Daniel 3. It's my prayer for all of us. Now as we walk through chapter 3, I suppose an outline is not really necessary because it's, it's a narrative. It flows. But at least let me put some hooks on it that you might be able to track where the writer Daniel is going. And so I see here in this, as we put these hooks on it, seven features of God's sovereign deliverance from the fiery furnace to encourage you in difficult times, okay? Seven features of God's sovereign deliverance from the fiery furnace to encourage you in difficult times. For everything Paul said in Corinthians was written in the past was written for our encouragement that through the instruction of even the Old Testament, we may have hope. So rather than reading the text as would be my norm every Sunday, I think I'm just gonna read the text as we move. So with open Bible, chapter three, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one under uh, every other pew, you're welcome to look on. But let's look at these features and we'll start with the dedication of the golden image. The dedication of the golden image in verses one through three and here's the plot. You say, well, what happened? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, 3-1, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The, then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the, treasure, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You're going to catch that word. If you're young, you could underline every time the word set up is mentioned. I think it's mentioned 11 times just in chapter 3 alone. And so he set this image up in the desert of Dura, and it was of gold. I think I got a question a couple weeks ago after Daniel interpreted the dream and Nebuchadnezzar said to him, you, you serve the God of gods, 
was he converted? And my answer was clearly no, though Daniel had interpreted the dream in the four kingdoms and interpreted the dream with the head of gold and the breast of silver and the legs of bronze and the feet of iron, he nailed it. And in fact, look back, he, Nebuchadnezzar, he must have forgot chapter 2, it says in verse 46, that he fell upon his face, 246, and, I mean, prostrated himself <laughs> and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that the offering and the incense be offered up to him. It's, it's an act of worship from Nebuchadnezzar. And I told you that some commentators disbelieve that because they've never seen a king bowing to a subject in his kingdom. But this is exactly what the word of God says. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief uh, prefect over all of the wise men in Babylon. And Daniel uh, made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, modern day Iraq. But Daniel remained in the king's courts. And so he was, he was grateful, but he was unconverted. He was, Nebuchadnezzar, charmed by the gospel, but unchanged because of its truth. He was brought to some kind of conviction, but he remains an unconverted king. Now, the question would be, when he set up this image, was the image of gold an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Uh, we cannot be sure, it's just a golden image, but the Hebrew term for image can mean Literally, the likeness of something living or the image that would even be in human form. So whatever happened in chapter 2 when he was reciting the dream and the four kingdoms, and remember Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 238, you are the head of what? Gold. And then he says, and then there's going to come a kingdom after you, and then another kingdom after you, inferior to you. And so here I think it's best to see this massive edifice in the desert arising as a monument to Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's a monument that he makes to his own glory. In fact, I think here Nebuchadnezzar wants more than the head of gold. He wants the entire statue to reflect himself with no succeeding kingdoms. So, well, tell me a little bit more about this golden image. Well, it says there in verse 1 that it was 60 cubits in height and 6 cubits in width. You say, well, what's that? Well, I've told you a couple weeks ago, this was written in Aramaic. Let me just tell you what that means and their terminology and numerology of what that means. This statue in the desert was 90 feet tall. And it's interesting, 
it was only nine feet wide. It's as tall, if you will, as a nine-story building, but it must have towered in the desert. So here's Babylon, and here is this plain of Dura. It's about 16 miles outside of Babylon or modern-day Iraq, and maybe you can picture it in your mind. And what I want you to picture in terms of this dedication is kind of a totem pole. I mean, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. To put it this way, a street pole is about 60 feet in the air. Imagine this thing scaling up to 90 feet and maybe larger because they had built a, a, a platform down there and it just was massive. Now, it says there in 3.1, he made an image of gold. I think we think that it was overlaid with gold. And so rising above everything in the plain of Dura was this gigantic image of gold. Externally, it's exquisite, and maybe it's bright and shining, but inwardly, it's a pile of wood. Then you ask, why would Nebuchadnezzar build this? And there's just one word of why he would build it, and it would be what? Pride, right? I think Nebuchadnezzar thought, mine is the kingdom, mine is the power, mine is the glory, I am the king of Babylon, I rule the known world, I am the head of gold, and I don't think he wanted anybody to succeed him. There is something, beloved, so grotesquely wicked in this gesture of idol worship. I think we understand it exalts man over God. I, I think it's fascinating if you remember a couple weeks ago, Dura is in the other place that we know biblically, Shinar, right? It's where in Genesis 11, the people built the, the tower of what? Babel. That's where this is. Come. Let us build ourselves a city. This is Genesis 11:4, And a tower with its top all the way to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, shall, we shall be scattered abroad uh, upon the face of the whole earth. So here is this golden image. And at the dedication ceremony, it included all the dignitaries. They're kind of the who's who in Babylon. Now you can see it there in verse 2, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all rulers and all officials. The satraps were the chief representatives. They were the princes. They were the protectors. And then there's the prefects. That was the military superintendents, if you will. Then there was the governors. Those are the civil administrators. There's the counselors. Those were the advisors to the king. The treasurers. Those were the financial advisors to the king. Then there were the justices. They handled Babylonian law. And then there was the magistrates. They passed judgment in keeping the law. And finally, at the bottom, he says, and all the officials. Now, I would say to you, there's an interesting subplot in chapter 3. And you're going to want to hold on to this thought. That as Nebuchadnezzar seeks to unify his nation politically, 
He uses religion. He mandates politically that all would worship him religiously. Say, why is that an interesting subplot? Because the Antichrist in Daniel 9 will weave his political agenda behind a unifying religion. So all the who's who is there. In fact, everyone, I would probably put it this way, on his payroll is present. But in addition to his payroll, look who else in verse 3. It says, then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates. You say, well, he just said that. I, I know. I think Daniel's being sarcastic. I think he's just letting you know this is everyone. He says, and the officials and all the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In other words, I think Daniel's showing these are puppets here. He wanted them there, they're there. He wanted them to drop, they're going to drop. It's like if you can picture this, and maybe this is how it will be in the end, the United Nations is there. Not just Babylon, all nations, all languages, everyone is there from his payroll. And they're standing before the image. In fact, the dedication of this image, I believe, is a demonstration of their solidarity. In other words, he's going to combine them and unify them. He's the, he's the biggest ruler and he doesn't want to lose people. So he's going to combine them, combine them politically behind this religious movement. That leads to the second feature. It's the declaration of the herald. Not only was everyone present, but a herald comes. A herald is one who proclaims. You say, well, what did he say? Look at the text in 4 and 5. And the herald proclaimed, and he said it there in verse 4 aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigone, harp, bagpipe, and every kind, it says, of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So this herald comes out in this dedication ceremony and he proclaims, you understand, Nebuchadnezzar's authority. Then he puts the, I'll call it the royal orchestra there and the royal orchestra is gonna set the mood and then the people are gonna bow and they're gonna sing and maybe they're gonna sing hail to the king. In other words, this herald comes out and says, when you hear the music, hit the dirt and worship. So well, what happened if they didn't? Put your eyes back in the text in verse 6. Whoever, this herald says, does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, what? Furnace of fire. The herald says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar is not joking. And if you thought he was joking or it's just some threat, go read Jeremiah 29, 22. 
He roasted Zedekiah and Ahab in the fire. Just Jeremiah 29, 22. He just roasted them. So he's not joking. Now you, you might ask, okay, here's the dedication. Here's the herald. How many people? Historically, because Babylon and Iraq was large, some believed, listen, there could have been as many as 300,000 at this dedication ceremony, okay? I mean, can you imagine what that would have looked like when the queue came and 300,000 people went down and then there's just three guys standing? Now, most of the people that would bow down to this and did were polytheist. They believed in many gods. And here's just one more, this image. Maybe it's of Nebuchadnezzar, but maybe it's of all of Nebuchadnezzar's gods, plural, combined. And so for those who are polytheist, this is not hard. Just bow down as you do to the others. But for the three, this would be blasphemy. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar chose is he chose this blazing fire, I think not only because it is a horrifying way to die, but I believe for Nebuchadnezzar it was convenient. Say, how so? Well, if they're building this statue and they built it and here's the ceremony, there would have likely been a huge kiln. You say, what's that? Picture almost, my mind is a nuclear power plant, okay? It would have been there to smelt the metal and the gold, and they would have probably manu manufactured bricks, if you will, to construct the base of that platform. And so we believe that there would have been kind of a cone-like shaft at the top creating a draft and an opening at the bottom to extract fused lime. And I'm sure it wasn't far from where this thing was constructed. And I'm sure when the three will be tossed in, they would be tossed in down from the top. I mean, it was convenient for him. The temperature in these kilns could reach as high as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And I believe it would have been seen by the people. Imagine, if you will, the, the, the flames that engulf the crowd when it, they would leap forth from this. So here's this towering gold image. All the higher-ups are there. They're present. The herald gives the proclamation. The music sets the mood. I want you to picture, to me, this is like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Bom, bom. I, I mean, picture the scene. Maybe as many as 300,000 people and like robots, they just go down, if you will. They hit the dirt, mission accomplished, it worked. And the thought would be no, because in a sea of humanity, three lone figures are not bending the knee. They are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And so here's the dedication of the image, the declaration of the herald. Thirdly, just to track with me, the, definition, the defamation of the Chaldeans. Put your eyes in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound, and he's going to say it again, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigone, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, what does it say? Fell down. And the, the, the idea here in the Hebrew is when the cue came from the royal orchestra, boosh, down they went. The thought is thousands, hundreds of thousands went down, and look at the end of verse 7, they worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar, here it is again, had set up. Therefore, at that time, watch this, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. I always, when I see that, I'm kind of like Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Oh, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, back again, again, the pipe, uh, the lyre, the trigone, the, hi the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast, here it is again, into the burning fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image, and here it is again, that you have set up. Who are these guys, the Chaldeans? Well, I think I mentioned there, it's an ethnicity, but that's not what Daniel's getting at here. These Chaldeans are the priest of a god of Nebuchadnezzar's main god, Bel Meridok, Meridok, either way. In other words, the green envy, the green disease is setting in. Daniel and all of his friends just went to the highest place in the post. These Chaldeans are jealous. The Bible says there in verse 8 that they were maliciously accused. The word in the Hebrew means they were torn to pieces is the thought. Chewed up, if you will. Torn to pieces. And they said they're disloyal to your rule, O king, and they should be dead on the spot. Jealousy. It's rampant in ministry today. You know what's fascinating? Do you remember in Daniel 2, when he interpreted the dream, he saved their necks. He stepped in and said, I, could, I can interpret that dream. Remember, he came to Arioch and he was saving the decree that went out that all the, the king's, you know, advisors were going to be murdered, but how quickly people forget. You say, well, what happened in this defamation? Look at the text in verse 13. There are certain, excuse me, 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? that I have, there it is again, set up. 
It, it says there, you see it, and he's in furious rage. Nebuchadnezzar is beside himself in anger. We might use the word, he is just livid. So Nebuchadnezzar gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their own personal ceremony. He gives them a second chance. Strike up the band and bow. So what happened? Well, look at verse 15. There's the second. He gives them this personal thought. Now, if you are ready, when you hear, there's the cue again, the sound of, and it's the same words, right? The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigone, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And you can underline this one. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who can do that? And so let's walk to the fourth feature. I call it simply the display of courage. The display of courage. Look at the text in verse 16. What would they say? What would they do? Shadrach, verse 16, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, not live forever. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What, what, a, what a wonderful, wonderful statement. But they say in verse 18, but if not, that's a great line. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. Here it is again that you have set up. I mean, just for a moment, think about the culture in which we live in. The culture of political correctness. The culture where we just need to go with the flow, whatever that might be. And you got these three young men, eyeball to eyeball, before the most powerful man in the world with external pressure to conform, the thought would be, and they are telling him, no, no. That's courage. These three young men would rather trust God and die than bow to an idol and live. This is the kind of young boys we want to raise here, right? This is the kind of fortitude that a young boy is going to need. And here these guys are, I didn't tell you this, we probably think from Daniel 2, putting together some thoughts in Jeremiah, that this is nine years later. So the boys got to Babylon and Iraq when they're 15. They were promoted at 18. And we believe it, as you come into chapter 3, they're probably in their late 20s. Bold. Say, so, well, yeah, I know they're bold. 
Yeah, but how come when you go back to the Bible with Peter, and Peter said, though all fall away, I will what? Not. I'd be willing to die with you. And then he gets into the courtyard, and a servant girl moves him. I don't know the man. A girl, and then he finds her, I don't know the man. And he began to curse, if you will. In other words, by oath, I don't know who he is. Not these guys. Not these three. They look him right in the eye, confident. He is able to deliver us from your hand. We will not worship the image. And you ask, are these young men just stubborn? And my answer is no, they're not just stubborn. And I want you to think with me here. Because the king's demand, Nebuchadnezzar's, is a direct violation of what? Of the word of God. You say, well, where? I mean, it's interesting in chapter 1, they took on the Babylonian names. And they didn't make a fuss. In chapter 2, he comes to Arioch and he makes a request. They request this in chapter 1. He makes a request in chapter 2, but not here. This is like utter commitment. Why? Because to fall down and worship is to violate what? The first commandment of the 10 in the Old Testament. Say, which one? Exodus 20, verse 3. Like, you think they're bold. I'm telling you, they're bold because it violated not just their conscience with a gray area, it violated their thought of the only true God that's revealed in Scripture. What's going to hold us as we go forward in our world is this. It says in Exodus 20 on the screen, you shall have no other gods, what? before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a what? A jealous God packed in his love and mercy and forgiveness is his jealousy. In fact, I think it's very interesting here. These three did not bow, but there's, there's scholars who believe there were as many as 50 to 70 Jewish young men that came a few years back. But these three are not bowing because it violated, here's the point, the word of God. In fact, it's that very issue that put Israel into exile. So here is, listen, you're looking at the narrative with me, you know this. This is the most crucial point in the entire chapter. Either bow and worship the idol and renounce the true God or trust the only true God and possibly face death. You know, when I was studying, I was thinking about 1 Kings 18, 21. Remember when Elijah came to all the people and they had the prophets of Baal and the prophets of God. How long will you go limping 1821 of 1 Kings between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. 
Now, now, let me just push this a little bit to you. I mean, these guys, it's so opposite of our culture. They didn't capitulate high schoolers, fifth graders, sixth graders. They didn't say that everyone else is what? Doing it, which they could have said, hey, there's 300,000 people maybe doing it. They don't capitulate. They don't rationalize. You say, like, like what? What do you mean rationalize? They could have, and maybe some of them did, I will have more influence alive rather than what? Toast or dead. I, I didn't hear them say, I'd rather be an activist than being reduced to ashes. In, in other words, they could have looked at each other and said, maybe we should just bow. They didn't, they didn't say we don't want to offend their culture and ruin our testimony. Churches are weak, often, as a generalization. I'm not seeing that. I, I didn't see them say, hey, we're kind of in Babylon now. What stays in Babylon, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. Hey, I don't want to offend Nebuchadnezzar. After all, he roasted those guys in the fire. He's not messing around. Or they didn't just say, let's bow once and then confess our sins. Maybe they, they didn't even say this. Maybe we could just kneel on the outside, but our hearts are submitted on the inside. I mean, it is real easy, is it not, to justify and compromise our, our lifestyle, isn't it? You know, listen, I, I can't leave you on this. It's not just a figure or a figurine or a statue that becomes an idol. There is what we call in the Bible, idols of the heart. This gets a little closer to us. You might not have a figurine in your house, but you could just be prideful and that becomes your idol, whatever that pride shows itself in. It's an idol of the heart. You could have an idol of the heart being your own personal security. Daddy dead is still daddy, but daddy compromised. That's chaos. You could make security an idol of the heart. You could make envy of somebody else an idol of the heart. You could have an idol of the heart where you desire to control everything and everybody. See, these idols, so much, they're not external, but they're internal to us. You could be jealous and that could become an idol. You could be a manipulator in every situation rather than trusting God to get what you want. Lust can be an idol. Physical appearance can be an idol. Health, your health, though it's good of some bodily discipline, but health can be an idol. You say, Scott, what are you talking about? Just value your health more than you do the kingdom of God. Value your external appearance rather than coming before God with a broken heart. Listen, we've got to do business here. Success can be an idol. 
Power can be an idol. Glory can be an idol. Approval of other people can be an idol. Fairness can be an idol. You say, what do you mean fairness? Life has to be what? Fair. Well, it wasn't fair to Jesus, okay? So these are things that sometimes get in the way, whether it's hobbies. So, ooh, what do you mean a hobby? You could have a hobby, any of us could. Hobbies are okay, but if hobbies surpass your love for God, something's wrong. Greed can be a hobby. Performance can be a hobby. You could be bitter. What do you mean bitter? You can just try to control every relationship and not extend forgiveness. And so here, these idols include materialism, political correctness, Uh, If I could boil it down, I wrote this. It's love of pleasure rather than being a lover of God. You could make athletics and achievement an idol. So I'm asking my heart, your heart, do you live on internal principle regarding the character of God and his promises or do you compromise to external pressure and conform? Someone wrote this, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Look again at 18. We're almost finished here. Look at 18. I love this line. But if not, be it known to you, O king, if not, if he doesn't raise me, that we will not serve your gods, and interesting, it's plural again, or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know what I like about these guys? You've seen that before, underline that, but even if he does not, these young men did not presume to know his will. They show a sensitivity to God's will, I believe, in prayer. The question is not their disbelief in the power of God, but his will being accomplished in the midst of a trial. The question was not, could he? Of course he could. The question rather is, would he? I'd ask you, is God all-powerful? You would say yes. Is God able to deliver you from all trials? I would say yes. But God does not deliver you from all trials, does he? No. Some of you might be in the midst of it right now. And so here's the question. Are you prepared to serve our Lord even if your trial doesn't correspond to the end result or timing that you want? I mean, here's what makes these guys just courageous. He can do this, but if he doesn't, even if he chooses not to, then we're not going to bow. That, beloved, is internal conviction built off the character of God. God's character is revealed in his word. And I want to encourage you parents, you find in your heart every place you can to teach your children. Every single place. Can you imagine where our country is going? I mean, I think we just saw the debacle on the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
They just brought out the sisters of perpetual indulgence. At some point, we're going to have to say, here's our stand. And here's who we are. And we're not going to bow and we're not going to capitulate and we're not going to rationalize. We're not going to get into all the things that everybody's saying is politically correct. Listen, this comes through a solid walk with God. I, I can't see it in the white spaces here. I don't know how these young boys turned into men and these men just had such tremendous courage. They just said, we're not going to do it. We're, we're not going to give in. And sometimes they make requests in chapter 1 and 2, but on this one they don't. And where they stand is where God's word is unbelievably clear. Listen, for you who are grandparents, what a, what a time to put truth in the heart of your kids. Amen? We'll pick this. You say, what happened? You got to come back next week. Even if you live from the Netherlands, fly away and come back, okay? <laughs> Let's bow in prayer and we'll have a final song.